Doug Scheiding of Rogue Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Episode number 79, holiday episode of Baseball and Barbecue. I am Leonard Aberman, here with my incredible host, Jeff Cohen. Oh, thank you, Len. How are you? I am doing great and excited about this episode. And we're going to have on Tim Kirchin. Jeff, who's Tim? He's from ESPN Baseball Tonight. No one knows more than baseball than Tim Kirchin. One of the faces of baseball, that's for sure. Absolutely. And, and then after Tim, we have Kevin Sandrich, who is the has a podcast called the Barbecue Beat Podcast. He has barbecuebeat.com. And we had a wonderful interview all about barbecue with Kevin Sandrich. Leonard, I understand you're upset about something. Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a little mad. <laughs> Do I hear a BBQ rant? Yes, you do, Jeff, because I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm looking, I want to find podcasts with barbecue in them. Is that too much to ask? So I yes. started looking, all right? Barbells, Bullets and Barbecue, Boobadoo Barbecue, You're Invited to the Barbecue, The Family Barbecue, Barbecue and Stuff, Barbecue Podcast. It actually says BBQ Podcast. Not a single one of these has barbecue talk in it. So basically, barbecue means, hey, let's just get around and talk about stuff. And there's no barbecue talk. If I'm looking for a podcast, I want to have barbecue talk. Well, that sounds a little crazy. I mean, none of them have barbecue talk in it, even though it's in the name. No. Soul barbecue. Biz Jethro's barbecue sound off. Sacred Flame barbecue. Here's one. The Horror Movie Barbecue Podcast. What the heck is that? So, yes, no, no, there's no barbecue talk. Barbecue people, you know what I'm talking about. And baseball, you know what I'm talking about. When you looking, when you put in a search word, you want to find what you're looking for. I find these barbecue podcasts, and there's not a single talk of barbecue. Well, that's, that's a little nuts. And that should get you a little crazy. And if you want to talk about it, give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Check us out on our Facebook page. Tweet us. We're at baseballandbbq. We're on YouTube. We have a Instagram, baseballandbbq, where barbecue is all spelled out. 
And we also have a website, www.baseballatbbq.weebly.com. Jeff, last week, we celebrated our three-year anniversary. And unfortunately, we got this greeting after we recorded. Would you please read it and tell us who it's from? Hey, Jeff and Len. I want to wish you a huge congratulations on three wonderful years. Your humor and wit are matched only by your kindness. Thank you for having me on as a guest. One of the best, most listened to podcasts around baseball and BBQ. It is always a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for always treating me like family. Wishing you and your show many more years of success. Best regards, Ray Sheehan of BBQ Buddha. Thank you, Ray. Ray's a great guy. Yeah, thank you, Ray. Not only is he a great guy, but his barbecue book, Award-Winning Sauces and Rubs, is getting tons of awards. So you really need to check it out, buy his book. And not only that, speaking of purchasing things, we have two companies that we think are fantastic. BaseballBBQ.com for grilling tools and accessories and FifthAndCherry.com for these incredible cutting boards. Check them out. Hey, Len, why don't we get to our first interview with Tim Kirchian of ESPN. We have found a guest who loves baseball as much as we do, and it's pretty safe to say he may be one of the most knowledgeable baseball lovers we have ever met. For the last 40 years, he has covered the game as a member of the media. In a career that includes authoring three books, writing for Sports Illustrated, and working as a baseball analyst for ESPN, this Maryland Turk is very generous with his time. Without a moment's hesitation, he agreed to be our guest. We are extremely honored to welcome Tim Kirchin to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, fellas. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Tim, let me get your thoughts first. First thing, thoughts on this in the shortened season. But you know, how, how do you how do you think the Major League Baseball and the Players Association handled it? Well, it's a miracle. It's a miracle they finished that season in a lot of ways. So it was disjointed. It was uneven. It was really bad at times. At the same time, it was great that we finished it. I was really worried in the in, in July that we would even start it. And then after the Marlins and the Cardinals all seemed to test positive, I didn't think there's any way those teams could get anywhere near 50 games. And I thought, I'm really wondering if we're going to finish the season. But we made it to the finish line. So it was the strangest, oddest, weakest, stupidest, smartest baseball season of all time. But we got through it. And that has to be viewed as a raging success. And the reason it worked is that the players, for the most part, showed some real discipline when it came to following the health and safety protocols. So everyone in the game, especially the players, deserves some credit for pulling this together at a time where it could have all fallen apart. Tim, if they had gone one more game, if the Rays had won that sixth game, maybe there would have been a delay in the season. Who knows what would have happened because of Turner. Yeah, well, we'd probably be doing Game 7 of the World Series tonight instead of <laughs> this. We were, very lucky. <laughs> we were very lucky. I mean, just look at the season. Juan Soto tested positive like two hours before the first game of the season. And Justin Turner tested positive in the eighth inning of the last game of the season. And everything in between was a complete 
mess on so many levels. And again, it turned out to be a beautiful mess because we got a great October for baseball and we finished a season that a lot of people didn't think we would finish. But man, imagine if the Rays had won game six, what kind of problems that would have caused. I don't even want to think about it. It just gives me a headache. Well, they, they might have if they let Snell pitch a couple of more innings. Yeah, I'm still wondering why Blake Snell was taken. It's, it's it's just a it's something that's going on in the game right now. We we don't trust our players anymore, especially our starting pitchers. We don't even want them to be great certain nights. We don't want an ace to be an ace. We have a plan before a game starts that third time through the order or 73 pitches, whatever the magic number is, that's where we stop. And I understand it works for the most part, especially for teams like the Rays. But every once in a while, we really have to start watching the games again and make a decision and recognize the best player on the field that night was Blake Snell and nobody could hit him. And when you're the Rays and you're in an elimination game and you're playing a team that's better than you are, even by a little bit, you have to take a chance. You have to veer from the course once in a while. And I think the Rays made a mistake not doing that. That doesn't mean they would have won the World Series, but they would have given themselves, I believe, a better chance to win game six. Tim, it's such a, I think this whole with pitches and how ERA now is the determining factor with the Cy Young. How it's so, we have gone so far away from, one law, from, from the one loss record. When I was a kid, when Jeff was a kid, I'm sure when you were a kid, when, when a, one of the first things you looked at was for a Cy Young award, did a guy win 20 games? If he didn't win 20 games, he wasn't winning the Cy Young that year. He didn't look at the ERA. Isn't that the way it was back then? It was one win-loss record was the most important thing. Well, I've always thought ERA was a critically important thing, but you're right. Back when I grew up, and I grew up before you guys did, believe me, wins and losses were really important. And this is just another change in the game that we have devalued the wins for our starting pitchers especially, because we don't leave them in long enough to get a win, and we take them out of the game before they can qualify for a win. So our stack guys are absolutely right on a lot of fronts. You can win 18 games and have a bad year. You can also be Jacob deGrom and have 10 wins and have the best year in baseball. Look, I get it. I totally follow all these numbers. I factor everything in, but I still factor wins and losses in. And that puts me in the vast minority of people in the business now who actually look at wins and losses. ERA is still, to me, the greatest indicator of how well you pitch that year. But there's so many other variables, but wins are one of them. And I'm not going to lose track of them. Right. Based on this past season, your opinion, which will stay and which will go? Well, the, the universal DH is going to stay. And I'm all for that because I just want the same set of rules in each league. If you told me the pitchers were going to bat in both leagues, I would tell you that's okay. I just think we should have uniformity in that rule. But practically, logically, the DH helps keep our pitchers healthier. 
it allows a star player, Freddie Freeman, for instance, to take a day off from first base and still get four at-bats in that game and keep him healthier also. So as we try to keep our players healthier, the DH can do that. As for all the other rules, I'm sorry, I'm 63 years old. I grew up a certain way watching the game. And even though I think every one of the rules that they put in this year was a great idea for this year, this bizarre 60-game mad dash to the finish, which we didn't even think we were going to finish. We needed expanded rosters. We needed a runner on second base in the 10th inning. We definitely needed seven-inning doubleheaders. But sorry, once we go back to 162 games, I am adamantly opposed to seven-inning doubleheaders. We should play nine innings. We've been doing that for 150 years. We should not put a runner on second base to start the 10th inning. We should play till somebody wins. No tie scores or anything like that. And I'm sorry, I didn't even enjoy the three-batter minimum for our relief pitchers this year, in part because the games, they didn't go any faster, which was kind of the plan. In fact, they went slower. So I'm not a fan of any of these things except for the universal DH. So let's keep that, and you can you can get rid of the rest. But we might not get rid of the rest. I'm in the minority here. I tell you, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you, but a little different take on a DH, only because the way pitchers go like today – if they pit, if they hit one or two times, they're out of the game. That late game strategy is out of there anyway. No double switches and no buns. It doesn't even matter. The pitcher isn't late in the game. Might as well have a DH there anyway. Yeah. Well, if, if I had my way, and obviously I don't, I'd let the pitchers hit. I kind of like it when a pitcher hits. I kind of like it when a pitcher who can't hit, it's a three-run double off of Max Scherzer, which I saw Rick Porcello do a couple years ago. When Bob Gibson used to play and he hit a home run in game seven of a World Series, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So, again, I can live with the universal DH as long as we're keeping players healthier. Same set of rules in each league. Right. I like, the, I like the same set of rules in each league. I think that right now it's baseball one and baseball one A. It's two different games. You, so you got to have the same rules. Tim, tell us a little bit about your childhood. When, when did you first – I know I read a little bit about you online, you know, on Wikipedia and all that. I saw that your father was, a, was an extremely brilliant mathematician and that baseball played an important part in your childhood. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and when you started loving the game or discovering it. Well, I loved it for as long as I can remember because you're right. Uh, Baseball was the only language we spoke in my house. My dad, he was a good player and he had a tremendous feel for the sport. He grew up in Watertown, Mass, watching Lefty Grove, Jimmy Fox, and of course, Ted Williams. And I grew up to stories about that. This is all we talked about in my house. My two brothers, Annie and Matt, are in the Baseball Hall of Fame at Catholic University. They were great college players. Again, this is what we did when we were kids, is watch the game, play the game, and we played the other sports too. But baseball was always the primary sport in our house because my dad convinced us, and he was right, that that baseball is the best game on so many different levels. And trust me, I love basketball. Love it, love it, love it. But baseball is the best game. And this was hammered into me ever since I was a tiny kid. And I can remember the 66 World Series. I was nine years old. And that's when I really first 
really started to understand what I was watching. I saw a bunch of games before then. I saw Willie Mays hit a homer to lead off the 65 World Series on a color TV, the first color TV we ever got. That was a seminal moment. But 66 was pretty cool. And then in 67, I'm in the sixth grade, and Miss Thiebert, our sixth grade teacher, told us at 1.30 in the afternoon, put your books down, put your pencils away, we're going to watch the World Series. And we watched an hour and a half of the Cardinals and the Red Sox play in the 67 World Series. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, this is, of course, what we would do at my house. And now my teacher loves baseball so much that at least for an hour and a half, she's going to put it ahead of our studies. And that was a seminal moment in my very life. That's great. That's great. And you uh, went out to college and went to uh, Universal Maryland, and then you started your newspaper career. I, did I read online that you couldn't, you weren't able to get on the the college newspaper, but you went to a local a local newspaper that you work at? Yeah, but it must be pointed out. I went to Walter Johnson High School in right. Maryland, named after the greatest pitcher of all time. So there was a certain amount of destiny involved there. And that's where I started my writing career. I worked for the school newspaper. It was called The Pitch. I did a little work for the yearbook. It was called The Windup. So that's kind of where I decided maybe, maybe I could be a writer, but I was a terrible, terrible writer in high school. In fact, one of my gym teachers once told me, he said, that story you wrote today might be the worst story I've ever seen in this school paper. And then he paused and he said, I hope you're not make, planning on making this your life's work. <laughs> turned out I did. But yes, when I went to the University of Maryland showing no gumption whatsoever, I went to the Diamondback, our newspaper, four years in a row, offered to write for the school paper. Each time they told me, all right, we, we got enough writers. We don't need you. And I just went home. That was it. I should have showed up again. So when I graduated from Maryland, I went to the Washington Star major newspaper, great newspaper. And I literally went there five days in a row, begging for them to let me in so I could tell them that I could help them cover sports. And they finally let me in on the sixth day. And I never left until the paper folded, of course. So, yes, I showed a little more gumption after college. Well, you certainly did because you wrote for Sports Illustrated which, of course, show them. <laughs> we have something in common because I read Sports Illustrated. <laughs> so, but tell us about your time at Sports Illustrated. How was that? Because, they, I mean, Sports Illustrated, I don't know now with the internet, but at the time, you that was looking forward to Sports Illustrated every week just to get it in the mail was, uh, you know, was the treat of the week. Well, before I get to SI, what prepared me for Sports Illustrated was I was a beat writer for 10 years covering baseball. And that, that really got me ready to do everything in this business. It taught me to, to write quickly. It taught me to figure out what, when, how. It taught me to, to, to be a reporter. It taught me to – I learned where to look and when to look. So that helped me in so many different ways. But then when I went to Sports Illustrated, that was an, an enormous – change for me because as as a beat writer you're like a baseball player you play or you write every single day and some days you stink up the joint it just happens you're on deadline you write a lousy story but you can always play tomorrow night there's always another game tomorrow night but when I went to Sports Illustrated after 10 years on the beat 
you screw up a story at SI and you have a week to write it, there are no excuses whatsoever. There's no, hey, I ran out of time on this one. So I felt enormous pressure there because the level of expertise and the level of perfection in Sports Illustrated was like nothing I'd ever seen. So yeah, I worked so, so hard just to make sure they liked what I wrote. It was like the greatest moment every Sunday when they would call me and basically say, your story is good enough to run this week because there were a couple weeks that weren't very good. And that was a bad feeling. So I will never forget my eight years at SI. I learned so much and I learned writing is really, really important and you better do it well or else it's going to be rejected. Let me bring you back to today's baseball. Looking ahead to the 2021 season, is it going to be a full season? What do you think? (laughs) I'm not even sure what's happening tomorrow, let alone in February, March, April. But I'm, I'm going to take the high road and say, yeah, we're going to play 162 games. However, something dramatic has to happen between now and the first of the year. We're going to have to get a vaccine. They're not going to let these players go to spring training in a normal situation. We're not going to play 162 games with the health climate that we have right now. That has to change dramatically. But I have hope. I always have hope that we're going to get 162 in. So I'm going to stay with that. But man, we got some work to do. And then there's no telling what the game's going to look like, what spring training's going to look like. And uh, so I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. But all bets are off because it's still a very, very clouded future in baseball. Oh, I totally agree. And, and what, what concerns me is that slashy of the collective bargaining agreement. And with this year, with the revenues way down and, you know, not, I don't think there's going to be a lot of movement in the free agency in terms of money. I, I think there's going to be a, uh, might be a work stoppage before 2022. I'm concerned about that. Yeah, so am I. We're all really concerned about that. And that's why this offseason is so crucial to see where the money is, who gets paid, My fear, and it's the fear of almost everyone in the business, is that the money that all that the owners lost in 2020, they're just not going to be willing to open up their checkbook and start signing free agents. Now, George Springer, JT Real Muto, DJ LeMahieu, Trevor Bauer, they're all going to get paid, and they should. Maybe not exactly what you know they would get in a normal year, but this is going to be anything but a normal off-season in baseball, and I'm worried about it. So all this great feeling that the owners and the players put together a sense of collaboration to get the 2020 season done, its I'm afraid we're going to lose all of that because it's going to be a very trying winter. And then if a trying winter goes into next year and there's still – hatred between the two sides, and we still have to deal with COVID, and then we have to get a collective bargaining agreement after 2021. Any logical person would wonder about what's going to happen in 2022, and logically you have to think uh, there's a real chance of a work stoppage in some kind. Tim, I consider you, I think you're considered a baseball insider. There's always the rush for a network, a reporter, someone to break a story. You know, it's always the first to get to a story. And I'm sure that there are times that you've been privy to, th- you're privy to things all the time, I'm sure. When you find something out and you want to get it out there, 
What do you go through with the process in your mind and, 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 and how you know to release a story that something that you have this thing that could be earth shattering or maybe not even earth shattering. What's the, what do you, what's the process you go through before you release this news? Well, I'm not the insider that I used to be. I mean, that's a fact. I'm not the reporter that I used to be. I am more a baseball analyst now. I'm a baseball writer who looks at the bigger picture. And we have all sorts of people across the country who are are breaking news every single day. That's no longer me. My job description has changed. And those guys are remarkably good. But I am and there are no buts. I am uncomfortable with the way we do our journalism today. When I grew up in the newspaper business, you better have two really good sources before you're breaking any story in your newspaper. And now we're breaking it in 240 characters. And that's not to say the really good guys at this are doing it incorrectly. They're not. They're great at it. But I'm too old and I'm not comfortable anymore just coming up with something and releasing it on Twitter. So if I have something, I'm going through the news desk at ESPN. If I have something, I might wait a little while and explain it on baseball tonight or during a broadcast that I'm doing for a game, or I'll write a longer story about it. But I I don't break news at all like I used to, in part because not very good at it anymore, and I'm uncomfortable with where our journalism is these days. We just want to be first. We don't always want to be right, and that worries me. Uh, speaking about baseball tonight, you and uh, Mark Teixeira, they you do a you do your, your show baseball tonight, and I guess before and after the shows, uh, the, the games. What goes into preparing for that? Are you watching the games all, all day at the studio, and then the ESPN game come on? You you do your your stuff, and then come on afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I I prepare every single day, starting at 6 o'clock in the morning, sometimes earlier, devouring the box scores, doing my day-by-day book by hand. I used to cut out all the box scores, which I did for 20 years. I'm not stupid enough to do that anymore, but it was great fun while it lasted. So, yes, I'm always prepping before the game starts. But my, my favorite part about baseball tonight is sitting next to Mark Teixeira or Buck Showalter before or Bobby Valentine or Aaron Boone or all these David Ross, all these former players who could teach me so much while I'm watching a game with them. And it is so great to break down literally every pitch. And I was in heaven as we all were in October this year. We had eight playoff games in one day. I said on baseball tonight, this is the greatest day of my whole life. And people actually questioned me and said, you have two children. This is more important than the birth of your children. I was kidding. It wasn't the biggest day of my whole life. I was just trying to make a point. Right. He played out games in a day. And yes, I made sure one way or another, I watched almost every pitch of every one of those games, even though I was doing games for on the radio and TV during those playoffs. So yes, that's how you prepare. You watch every single pitch. You sit next to a big leaguer, you bounce things off him, you're looking up stuff constantly, I'm making phone calls during the game to make sure I know what's going on. That's all part of the preparation. So when the show starts after the World Series, I like to think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you do it well, believe me. Uh, let me ask you, players are better condition today, they take care of themselves better, they have plenty of money, but was baseball played better a generation or two ago? 
Yeah, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to come across as some whiny, angry, bitter old man. I'm telling you that the players are, without hesitation, bigger, stronger, faster, and better than they've ever been. It's unbelievable how athletic these guys are, how strong they are, how hard they throw. These pitchers today, it's a joke. I don't know how anyone ever gets a hit off of these guys. That's how good they are, and they come at you in waves, all throwing 95 to 98 miles an hour. However, because some of these guys just overpower the sport with their physical gifts, I don't believe that they know how to play the game as well as guys did 20 or 30 years ago. And look, I'm not saying please bring Cal Ripken and George Brett and Paul Molitor and Robin Young back to, back to life so we can watch them play again. I'm telling you, those guys had a better idea how the game was played. Base running, defense, throwing to the right base, all that. People say that's corny, but I've said multiple times, the base running in the big leagues is the worst I've ever seen in my 41 years of covering. And I'm not proud to tell you that, but it's my job as an analyst to explain what we're watching. And I cannot believe how bad the base running is. And it doesn't follow. It's a paradox. If the players are bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever, the game should be better than ever. And I don't think it is. I still love it. I love it with all my heart. I will watch it no matter what. It's still the best thing in the world for me. I'm just telling you the game was played differently and a little bit better years ago. And I'm not the only one who believes that. You ask anyone who played back in that era, and they'll tell you the same thing. Yeah, uh, stolen bases is a lost art, that's for sure. A lot of lost arts out there, but that's okay because the game has changed. And it's not the player's fault. Our executives have decided the way you win the game is to walk and hit a home run. And the way to get the other guy out is to strike him out. And that's why we have too many walks, too many strikeouts, too many home runs, and not enough in between. And it's the stuff in between that is so beautiful. It's a squeeze bunt. It's a steal of third. It's a perfectly executed double play. It's hitting the cutoff man and throwing that guy out at the plate. We just don't have as much of that as we used to. But, Tim, yeah, I, I heard you on an ESPN broadcast, and I guess you had been on some radio show and somebody said something about Ozzie Smith, that they didn't think Ozzie Smith could play the game today. And I heard your reaction to that, and I would have had the same reaction. Are you insane? <laughs> Not you, <laughs> but are they insane? How to say, to say that probably the, the greatest, at least in the top two of great defensive fielders, you know, ever at shortstop. And... The guy could hit. I mean, yeah, he wasn't known for his bat, but he had speed. And uh, towards the end of his career, he, he was a better hitter. To have them say that is crazy. He could play now. I, I was surprised. Yeah, well, so was I. And they weren't saying he couldn't play. But the fact that they even raised the question about Ozzie Smith is a troublesome thing for me. And their point was – he hits a lot of ground ball. He hit a lot of ground balls. We don't do that anymore. He stole a lot of bases. We don't do that. He he rarely struck out. We strike out all the time. And because there are fewer balls in play, his great defense wouldn't be 
as important because there's so many strikeouts. All of these are valid points. However, he only played 25 years ago, not 85 years ago. He is the greatest defensive shortstop of all time. And given the importance and the responsibility of that position, you could at least make the case that he's the greatest defensive player of all time at any position. So I think it's ridiculous Ozzy Smith plays for any team today. They would make the adjustment, and he would make the adjustment, but there's just no way Ozzy Smith's going to just try to hit balls out of the ballpark. It, that just wouldn't work, and he wouldn't want it to work that way. Right, and, and he'd be in his mid-50s now or, or 60 playing today. <laughs> Tim? Could you give us a status of the minor leagues? I know they're uh, reducing the number the, the number of teams in the minor leagues. I don't think that's good for baseball. Uh, wh- why are they doing that? Yeah, I'm a little, I'm more than a little worried. Baseball is trying to streamline the operation. It's trying to save some money along the way. It's trying to bring everyone together and bring the minor leaguers actually closer to the big league teams. I think it's a mistake. Before the pandemic, they talked about cutting 42 minor league teams, which I was appalled to hear. And now we've just played a season without a minor league season. And I'm fearful that teams are going to go, well, we made it through without a minor league season. You know, why do we need one? Or if we do, why don't we just cut back a bunch of teams and save a lot of operating costs? I covered minor league baseball for two years. It was one of the great experiences of my life. I recognize how the game is the, how minor league baseball is the pipeline to the big leagues. It's the lifeblood to the big leagues, not to mention how critical it is to cities and towns across America. It is so important that a kid, that a fan can say, I saw Mike Trout play here when he was 18 years old. That really means something to them, and it should. And if we take that away, I think we're making a big mistake, and I hope we look at this very closely and recognize the minor leagues is extremely important to the major leagues. Will the major leagues now have more reliance on college baseball? Well, you would certainly think so. But, of course, we cut the draft down to five rounds last year. So it's not the same there either. Now, that needs to be adjusted, I believe. The good news there is our college baseball programs are so good now. They are so much better than they used to be. Our coaching is so good. The kids in, the, in, in college baseball are so big, so strong, so fast. And they're learning an awful lot. So there used to be a day where pro teams, major league teams would say, no, we're going to draft you out of high school and we're going to teach you how to do it. Now, a lot of college programs are teaching these players the right way and doing a much better job of keeping them healthy, which is very, very important. So I love college baseball, and it's a really important part of Major League Baseball. Well, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag a little here. My son is a student manager for the ASU team, and he knew a couple of those guys who went in the first round, and he's, he loves it. And He's not a ball player, but he's a student manager on the team, and he's always around it, and he loves it. It's great. That's uh, being at the ballpark every day. Can't beat that. No, that's true. <laughs> you should brag. You're a proud papa. That's yes. okay. <laughs> that was brag. the part, if I may, that was the part I missed the most about the 2020 season is not being at the ballpark. There is no substitute for being there. Look, I can make all the phone calls in the world. I can devour the box scores like I do. I can look up every statistic and I can talk to people on Zoom, but it's not 
the same. My job, what I've been doing for 41 years, is going to the ballpark at 1.30 for a 7 o'clock game, seeing who's hitting early, who's trying to play a new position, who's throwing in the bullpen at 2.30 in the afternoon. And then when I'm allowed in the clubhouse, I'm going to go talk to as many players as I can. Tell me about this. What's going on there when you don't have that? You just can't cover the game as thoroughly as you would like. And it really hurt this year. Needless to say, I did a bunch of games. I do games from the booth, of course, the last six years. This year, I did them from my house. I was all by myself in my office. And Carl Ravitch, our play-by-play guy, is 400 miles away in Connecticut. Eduardo Perez, our other analyst, is 1,500 miles away in Florida. And the game is is 3,000 miles away. So that was a really challenging season. And even though I think we did an excellent job covering a game from four different places, it was still a very difficult thing. And I hope that we don't have to do that again, because I repeat, there is no substitute for being at the ballpark. Agreed. It was strange to see, like Jeff and I are Met fans, and it was very strange to see when there were when the games were away and you had the, the guys in the booth, and you saw that City Field was pitch black, and they're doing a game from in the booth. The whole thing was, it was very strange. It was so strange. And just, just look at that game four of the World Series, the craziest finish we've ever seen to a World Series game. And I'm watching it at ESPN, because this is the first year in 40 years I didn't go to the World Series, because we didn't feel like it was worthwhile to go if we weren't going to be allowed on the field and talk to the players like we usually were. But the point is, we're all watching the game and we have one screen. And I didn't realize immediately, at least, that Randy Rosarena had fallen rounding third base on that play. And I'm watching the first baseman and the catcher and the ball, and I keep thinking, where is the Rosarena? Well, he fell down. But we needed two camera angles in order to see that play. And because we could only see one, that's where you miss being at the ballpark more than anything. Because if that play happens and I'm calling that game from the press box, I can watch the right fielder and the runner at the same time. But you can't do that when you're watching it on TV. And that's where it really, really hurts to not be at the ballpark. And and I agree. And as as I was watching all those replays and seeing Rosarina fall down, you had Kenley Jansen wasn't backing up the catcher. He was up the the third base line where, you know, maybe Rosarina would have have been back to third if, if Jansen was backing up the catcher. So, yeah, it was a crazy finish, and we couldn't really see it all on, uh, you know, on the swing. You had to be there. Yeah, I've never seen it like that. I was at the Buckner game, of course, and, you know, that was, you know, the, the stakes were higher. That was an elimination game for the Mets. The Red Sox were trying to win for the first time since 1918. But when Mookie Wilson hit that ball, remember, the score was tied at that time. Right. When Brett Phillips hit that ball. The Rays were behind. That is a significant difference. He drove in the tying run, and then two errors led to the winning run scoring in a walk-off situation. That's never happened in baseball history. And in the Buckner game, nobody fell rounding third base in that game. That's what separated game four from certainly any other World Series game that I've ever covered, at least at the end. Uh, Tim, we appreciate your time. I do have a, a couple more questions. 
Cohen and the Mets, what do you think? I think that's a great day for the Mets. And I'm not just saying that because you knuckleheads love the Mets. I'm saying that because that guy's got so much money that he is in a great position to spend a lot of it and go get a catcher, a center fielder, another starting pitcher. He can do a whole lot of things. But more important, I was wildly impressed with his press conference. He really looked like a guy who had an idea what he wanted to do. And I checked up on him. I don't pretend to know owners. I'd much rather talk to an outfielder than an owner, believe me. But when I checked on people who know him, they tell me, well, he's wicked smart. And he has a great idea about data and how data can lead to people in the organization, not just players, but people who work for him getting better. I think he's going to use that data. I think he's going to listen to the people in charge. And I think everything has changed for the New York Mets with Steve Cohen as the owner. And when he says, I'll be disappointed if we don't win a World Series the first three to five years, I believe him. And I know someone who knows him really well. And he told me, Tim, I promise you, this guy will not allow the Mets to be second to the Yankees, clear second to the Yankees during his tenure. He will do something about that. And now we'll see if he can. I love hearing that. Tim, you know what I, the thing that I think is amazing about the Mets with Stevie Cohen is, and, and unfortunately we cannot find any relationship between Jeff and Steve Cohen. We've looked, so it's, we haven't found any. I'm a fan of this team, right? I'm a fan of the Mets. I've been a fan since I was a kid. I used to listen to Art Russ Jr. on the radio, okay? So we can go, that's how far back uh, I go, right? I would scour the newspapers. When I would see an article and it mentioned Met, I would look at the article. Sometimes it was about the Metropolitan Opera, and I would be like, darn. But, you know, so I was a huge fan. And I'm always listening. I'm like, and they should make this trade, and they should sign this player. He's a fan of the team, and now he owns the team. So all those things that he wants to do or wanted to do, he can do them. And he's got the money to do them. And that's an amazing thing. Yeah, that's really important. He has a connection, a personal connection to the team. He is engaged. He is invested in the team based on where he grew up. And this is one of my concerns, fellas, with ownership in baseball today. They're not invested in their teams. They don't know the players. They don't really know the game. They don't really understand. It's just it's just another business for them. I grew up at a time where some of these teams were owned by families. Bud Selig, the Orioles with Jerry Hofberger. You know, it was a family-run business. Jim Campbell and those guys in in Detroit. It was different. It's it's not that way now. But Steve Cohen seems to have a real investment with with the Mets. And when he says, look, you know, all my money is over there in my business. That's where I'm going to make money. This is for the fans. Most people would find that to be corny. I actually listen to him. I actually believe him that because he's a great fan and so is everyone else in his family, that's why he wants to win for them. You know, Tim, I have, I have one last question for you, and it's about Cal Ripken. I know you were there when he broke the record most consecutive games. I also read that you drove home with him after the game. I would love to know what was in that conversation on that drive home. Well, I spent a week with him, and I drove 
to the ballpark with him and home from the ballpark with him. I went to his house a couple times and I saw him in all the situations that he would go through normally. And when I drove home with him after the game, it was like 1.30 in the morning and we're driving out of Camden Yards and I'm not making this up. We stop before we get to the light and a guy comes up to Ripken's window, just a fan off the street. He was probably drunk. He knocks on Cal Ripken's window and says, Cal, I know what you're doing wrong at the plate. You got your hands too high here. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> off the street is giving Cal Ripken hitting tips at 1.30 in the morning. He opens the window. He listens to this guy. And then he closes the window because the light turns. And I said, has that ever happened? And he goes, that happens all the time. <laughs> As we drove out of Camden Yards, there was an old man there. This is one of the great visuals, at least for me, ever. There's an old man there holding a sign that says, thanks, Cal, for saving baseball. And that's what that night was all about. That was the most powerful night that I've ever spent in a major league ballpark. And even though we knew you know, there's no drama here. In the bottom of the fifth inning, 2-1-3-1 is going to end this. But what we didn't know was there's going to be this unbelievably spontaneous 22 minutes where he ran around the ballpark patting his, his heart. This was so much bigger than a baseball story. This was, this was a neighborhood story. This was about loyalty and commitment. It was about a team, and it was about a guy. And it was, it was such a great thing. So I had a friend of mine who's a visiting writer who didn't know Cal Ripken very well, didn't know Baltimore very well, none of which is his fault. He lives a long way away. And he came in on the morning of 2-1-3-1. And he looked at me when the game started, and he said, Tim, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't feel it. What is the big deal here? So I said, Bob, look, let's just wait and see what happens after the game becomes official. So the game becomes official, 2-1-3-1 goes, and then there's this amazing 22-minute run, and I watched. There were people weeping, weeping in the stands. So after it was all over, and we still don't even know what to make of it, it was that good. My friend Bob, the sports writer, comes up to me. He's got a tear in his eye, and he goes, okay, now I get it. That's what that night was all about. It was fabulous. It will never be duplicated. And that was the start of baseball coming back to prominence. McGuire and Sosa really helped a few years later, but Ripken started the ball rolling. People had something good to stand behind. Tim, I have to tell you, we started this podcast. It'll be three years in December. I think everyone and their uncle has a podcast. The joy we get from this, look, I don't think we're ever going to be this world-famous base. Although we are the only baseball and barbecue podcast, but I don't think we're ever going to be this world-famous podcast. But the fact that we get to talk to people like you, specifically you, makes this, like you said, you get to sit next to the athletes. We get to talk to someone like you. To me, this is, this is just gold. I'm extremely grateful to you, Jeff and I, uh, we're so excited. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and, and make it like we I know you're supposed to make it like you've been there, but I'm going to tell you this. We were so excited to get the opportunity to speak to you. We're very grateful that you came on with us. 
And I, I just want to thank you so much. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I love anyone who loves the game. And I do what I do because of guys like you, guys that just really love baseball. So count me in on anything like that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Tim. We'll see you guys the next time. Take care. Wow. When I hear his voice, I, I, I do. I hear da-da-da, da-da-da. I love, I love that Cal Ripken story. Yeah, I was so glad you brought that up. That is amazing. <laughs> it happens to him everywhere. That's funny. Absolutely. And now, enjoy this interview with Kevin Sandwich of BBQ Beat. Our guest most likely has barbecue sauce running through his veins. The type of sauce, however, we cannot even fathom a guess. What we do know is that he has an incredible podcast dedicated to the world of barbecue and grilling. In a world, I should say that like in my movie voice, in a world where there appears to be more and more barbecue-related podcasts, the Barbecue Beat podcast stands out as one of the best due to his wonderful guests and his relaxed interviewing style. Our listeners know we never insist that we have the only barbecue podcast you should ever listen to. We just want to be one of the shows you enjoy. And if we can be included on the same playlist with our guest show, then we will be extremely okay with that. We are so thrilled to welcome Kevin Sandridge to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, hey, thanks, gentlemen. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you guys. It's our honor. It, yes, it is. So, Kevin, I've been listening to, like I said, to your show. I, I really, I think your interview style is its very relaxed. I, I, you get a lot out of your guests. You've got some incredible guests on. Let's just start on your background. How did you come to a barbecue podcast? Where Where's your love from, for barbecue come from? Well, I mean, growing up, it, it's been a part of kind of life down here in, in Florida in general. Uh, as a kid, mostly the, the hot and fast grilling aspect, like everybody, I think, across the country, you know, a, a Weber gas grill or something close to that played a, a role in, you know, the, 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 the steak slash hot dog slash hamburger, you know, mashup that was cooking out, so to speak. I didn't get involved in sort of traditional barbecue like the low and slow kind and until I started, or at least I don't remember much of it until I started traveling in the summers up north of here, of Florida to North Carolina and Virginia to visit relatives. My uncle was a Methodist minister in Durham, North Carolina, the Raleigh-Durham area, as you guys probably know, is you know a hotbed for, for Carolina-style barbecue. And just that was something that I hadn't really experienced. I remember going out just in my mind, it's just sort of generic places. You know, since I've been back, some of those places are no longer with us. But the general experience just kind of grew from there. Both of my sides of my family on my dad's and my mom's side were farming families. So meat played a, a powerful and strong role in, in sort of the, the daily life. On my mom's side, she was outside of sort of the Danville, Lynchburg, Virginia area. And you know, they they were a tobacco farming family. So growing up, you know, she's, uh, there's a long story behind why my, my parents are their age. My, my father's passed away, but my mom's in her, her mid eighties. 
and I have an older brother. This is an aside. I'm the king of tangents, by the way. I apologize, but uh, <laughs> my my older brother is 15 years older than me. Same mom and dad. No kids in between. Wow. So I'm pretty sure I was a hi, honey. I'm home from the Vietnam War, baby. Which uh-huh. I'm fine with that. I'm I'm here regardless. So uh, that's all good. But on my mom's side of the family, the tobacco side, they, it was it was meager meager living from an economic standpoint, although they would never know it because they, they were self-subsisting. They had everything they needed and, and, you know, the proteins that they raised were part of that. And so long story short, that youthful period going back and forth from Florida to the Carolinas to Virginia kind of fed that into. And then during the regular year, there was this place in Auburndale, Florida, here in, in Polk County, Florida, um, officially known on their vehicles for the county, Imperial Polk County, Florida. Thank you very much. So it gets the hashtag IPC. So in the IPC, there's a place called Peebles Barbecue that goes back to the 50s. It's just a concrete slab, you know, simple wood frame, cast iron pits inside, screens for windows, and really just excellent, basic barbecue, the, the, the standard fare, pork ribs, pulled pork, potato salad, white bread, so, stuff like that. But uh, that's it, man. That's, that's my, my, my baseline. And then I took from there, maybe about 2014, 15, I started to really catch some of those Food Network shows where people are judging competitions and so on and so forth. At the time, it was a, a big, I think it's a Texas area steak competition. This is long before like the state cook-off association and, and those guys got started. But I thought, man, that's a job for me. I just get to eat all the really good food. And, and that would be really cool to be around that environment. And so I, I ended up taking a Kansas City Barbecue Society judging class in Plant City, Florida. And then a couple months later, judged my very first contest there, the um, Plant City Pig Jam. That coupled with the Lakeland Pig Fest are two of the biggest KCBS contests here in Florida every year. And then not long after that, I actually put a shout out on Facebook to local people who might be involved with barbecue. And I connected with someone who was a a recent guest on your show, um, Chad Ward with Whiskey Bit Barbecue. Lakeland, Florida is not far from Winter Haven. And he was gracious enough to bring me sort of into the fold. He, I really credit Chad with being my entry point into competition barbecue. He was uh, part of a team, Whiskey Bin Barbecue, who was an amateur team at the time. And to show you what those guys were all about, open door policy, just like, you know, hey, we're going to show you behind the curtain, pull the curtain back a little bit, keep, your, keep, your, keep what you see to yourself and just we'll show you what we do. That was a, a Bartow, Florida contest for KCBS. Every contest typically has a stands as a qualifier for big events. Like if you win the grand champion at that event, it puts you in the running for things like the American Royal, the Jack Daniels competition that they, they hold every year. And they needed another team to be a qualifier. They were one team short. And sure enough, Chad and Whiskey Event Barbecue stepped up, moved up on site at that event to the pro level and managed to to walk the stage a few times and and have a really good showing. And that just really stands out as like my first sort of entry point into competition barbecue. And then a blog started from there and from there uh, a podcast and kind of that's where I am today. That's, that's great. And also you have this website, which I want to talk to you about now because you mentioned barbecue competitions 
and on your one of your pages on your website is a barbecue culture and camaraderie, which Len and I have been to a couple of competitions. And what you say here is absolutely right. You know, you go in and you talk to these guys and they are just willing to share nicest people you want to be around. They'll talk to you about their rubs, their, their injections, their, their, the way they cook. Uh, you do say that you should be, uh, you know, be in a little space around two o'clock on Saturday when they have to turn in their food. But other than that, they are, and they share with them within themselves. So tell us about your website and how, uh, and your writings here. My first, the first website uh, actually wasn't this site. It was a, it was called the barbecue smokers site. And I, I ran that for a while that morphed into the barbecue beat to be a little bit more general barbecue, but the site itself located at um, just BBQ barbecue beat BEAT, like a news beat is kind of the, the home base. There are some um, review articles there. There are some sort of general information articles about, I, I'm a teacher. As an aside here, I, uh, I teach world history here at a high school in Central Florida. I also teach some history and humanities courses at, at the college level. But anything I write for the website is meant to instruct and to sort of illuminate some of the aspects of barbecue, make things a little easier for people. Uh, you know, I have articles on like what exactly is like Wagyu brisket. You hear about it, but what is it? What's the history of the Wagyu breed of of cattle like so i go into detail about certain things like that as well and those are sort of evergreen resource articles that will never really go out of sort of fashion they're not time-centered right they're just informational for the most part now kevin like us you you started a a barbecue uh podcast of course we have baseball and barbecue so that makes us the number one baseball and barbecue podcast in America. I mean, Without question, without exactly. question. But barbecue has definitely grown. You definitely have a love for it. You started with the, with the blog, but now you move to a podcast. What, and, and you're doing it on your own. Now I know with Jeff, we kind of, we kind of motivate each other. To, so if I don't feel like doing something, Jeff's like, oh, we got to get it done. Or, you know, he's usually the, the taskmaster. But you went to a barbecue podcast in, in a world where, again, there are a lot of podcasts, but yours stands out, okay? Before, before I even saw you online, I knew of your podcast. What keeps you motivated? What made you just decide, I'm going to do a podcast? And I mean, just give us a little more background. And I, I mean, you gave us the background, but tell us how, how you begin the podcast and where you're going with it and... and some more about it. So the podcast was born from a point of necessity, really. As a, as a teacher, I have this, this mindset that I always have to be sort of hustling to keep the wolves away from the door. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> the, the experience and the, and the rewards of teaching that are sort of intangible are amazing, but I, I need tangible dollars to pay bills. So I... I'm busy and I got busier and busier with different teaching jobs on and, and I just didn't have time to really sit down and type out a lot of the article work I've been doing. So I thought, well, podcasts are, are a thing and, and, and I never seem to have a problem talking. Uh, that kind of just like, as my, my stepmother would say about my, my, my father and the rest of the Sandridge clan, we, we talked to a, uh, 
talk to a road sign and then knock it down for not answering us back. It's like a little tar baby kind of narrative there. So, you know, the, the issue there is just, I really enjoy meeting people as Jeff, as you said, you know, you, the, 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 the thing I tell judges all the time, after you get done judging, don't just go home, pack up your stuff in a cooler, whatever you want to do. If you're taking some of what you ate home to enjoy, that's fine. And then, Go meet the teams. That's that's half the experience. So forging sort of relationships with folks that are doing interesting things, and, and it all started in the competition sense, but I started to get to a point where how many times can, in a row, episode to episode, back to back, can I have someone talk about how they cook the four competition meets, right? I mean, a, after a while, as a listener, I'm going to get a little bit done with that. So I started to branch out and take the idea of barbecue in more of a, a general sense. I mean, barbecue means a lot of things to a lot of people. It, so basically anything that deals with live fire cooking or cooking over any kind of fire, really, a very sort of open-armed approach to it. And, and that led me to where, where certain pro, you know, people care about, competition guys pay so much money for certain proteins. I mean, you're, they're paying $200 and up for one brisket that's got that sort of Wagyu cross marbling that they're going to want to to sort of wow the judges and that just single bite that they serve them. So who's out there raising heritage breed animals? Well, that led me to John Jackson, former army ranger and a veteran who is, you know, who started the comfort farms initiative that is now a, a center and a place of healing for veterans in Georgia, Milledgeville, Georgia, where they can go and be mission centered again. Right. And have a, you know, farming is a chaotic environment, as was many of the experiences that many of the, the veterans he works with experienced, like when they were active duty, managing and, and, and raising and nurturing in that environment and having a mission goal. You know, that was really great that I got to speak with him about that. I mean, it's not competition barbecue, but at the end of the day, they absolutely make use of the proteins that they raise there on the farm and, and it's high quality stuff and there's a story there and a narrative. And it just let me also share something that's happening in the world that's positive and good. And, uh, and that's sort of like my mindset. Like I just, I really want to share out the stories of what's happening, you know, not just here in the States, but abroad as well in places like Austria or Italy or England what people are doing and, and, and like my conversation with the halal barbecue pitmasters out of Texas. I mean, those guys talking about the halal style of, or the, the concept of what halal is and, and, and the rules and regulations behind it and how they grew up with that and their influences in their, not just from the cultural standpoint, but from different spices, like bringing, bringing things in like, you know, different curries and sumac and different things that maybe aren't part of the American palate, but they blend and, and truly spell out what it means to be in my mind an American by taking the flavors and and the nuances of different cultures and blending them together and making something new out of it. So, yeah. Speaking of that, not only the flavors, but, but language also, because you recently had on Kevin Edge from Edge Barbecue, which is in England, Britain, Britain. I'm not sure what part yeah, of yeah. it. Okay. Or right outside of London. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he was talking about, you know, the, the language that uh, language differences, you want to talk about that a little? <laughs> well, well, I mean, as far as just, I, I, I know I had to stop him a couple times because he would use sort of, I would say like maybe Cockney terminology that that's like, wait, so what you mean is this and just little, little it's like, what, what is, what, what's the saying? The United States and Britain 
two countries divided by a common language. You know, it's like we, we have different ways of speaking things. But, but I tell you what those guys in, um, in England are doing is, is amazing. If you're not following Dan Elke is his name. Elke is his nickname with the smoking elk. This guy cooked, he took, he, I think 195 was the sort of like maybe UNESCO or the, the, the UN under, you know, sanctioned like, like, like countries, the actual countries of the world was 100, 195 was the number he came with. He made it a mission and successfully achieved cooking one signature dish from every single one of those countries and documented that on his Instagram feed. Wow. I mean, going down to like the authentic ingredients, if he was cooking a certain kind of like maybe for jerk chicken, like for instance, he went and found pimento wood, right? Like really getting detailed about it and driving his poor wife nuts with all these random ingredients in the kitchen that will never be used again because it was for that one dish. And the cultural aspects, the the language aspects, the, the different things that we get into. Um, my conversation with Dog and Angela from Norway, uh, the, those guys, Angela's from Texas, Dog is Norwegian. They're doing amazing things there. And it's funny when it, when it got to the concept of fish, I explained that I'm I'm still sort of terrified to cook fish on a grill. I, I just, I live in Florida and, and I, it's embarrassing, but I have this fear of flipping the filet and just everything sticking. And I try to do all the tricks and keep, Rachel says, you know, keep it clean, keep it lubricated and keep it hot. Right. But I, I don't know. I, I struggle. So, so it's, it's, we have a situation where she's like, oh, I have a, a solution for that. The Texas girl, Angela says, I just let the Norwegian do all the fish cooking and, and it works out great. So, you know, it's funny, Kevin, I'm going to go back to what you said and how if you just had on people and they just talked about competing and the four meats and all that. But one of the things that people, whether it's barbecue, whether it's bicycling, whether it's, you know, whatever these podcasts are, you have identified as we do as well, that the barbecue is one thing, but the people that it involves you know, everyone's stories are incredible. Look, Netflix is, is doing with, with their cook series and they've got the different cooks. Their stories are fascinating. You, you've got Operation Barbecue Relief, which does theirs. You've got all the restaurants. You've got just, like you said, the, the other countries. It's, it's never ending. I mean, we, I don't know how long you've been doing the podcast for. 2017. Yeah. Okay. So like us, we're actually, when this airs, we'll have already released our three-year anniversary episode. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. We we know there are other podcasts like the Barbecue Central Show, which we all know. Yep. Greg does great work. Yeah, absolutely. It's been around for years and he never runs out of things to talk about. And not only that, but he has on reoccurring guests every month. He'll have the same guests and they're always talking about different Always things. do stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's Greg's the OG, man. Greg in my book is like the, the original sort of barbecue media guy. And if there's a Hall of Fame out there for, uh, for what we're doing related to barbecue and podcasting and, and media, he's, he's the, the anchor, the, the, the inaugural member for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's amazing to me that how never runs out of subjects. This barbecue is just is endless. It really is. 
it, the only thing that, that stops it is, is somebody, well, to stop getting gas is lack of creativity. That's right. Um, you could never run out. You'll never run out of subjects. And, you know, sometimes you get somebody who says, oh, I'm too busy to come on or whatever. But for the most part, people in the world of barbecue, they are more than willing to, to give their time, to come on the show, to tell their story, to help other people. And, I mean, we just had on Tim Razor, who is, he has a company uh, called Fifth and Cherry, uh, which okay. makes high-end cutting boards. And his story is a fascinating. Part of it is he was a, a Marine helicopter pilot for 10 years, did three wow. hours of uh, duty in Iraq. And we had him on. And it's the, the, his story was amazing. So even there, you've got products. You've got, so there's a lot involved with it. So now I want to ask you this. Okay. Who is the most, your most interesting guest that you've had on? If, and you could give me a couple. You don't have to single one person out. And who is your dream guest that you are that you want to get? Let's see. I really enjoyed my conversation with. So, so I'm going to put two of them out there. My conversation with Dog and Angela, and what they're doing in Norway. It was just really cool. I mean, I think Scandinavia from Florida. It's such a remote, conceptual idea, geographically speaking and culturally speaking, for sure. But uh, just the fact that they're bringing in. I mean, they're not, you'd think, okay, barbecue shop in Norway, they're selling European-made, Norwegian-made stuff, but these guys are shipping in containers of Traeger grills. They're shipping in containers of workhorse pits, which primitive pits and out of, um, out of Georgia and their sister company, workhorse pits, I mean, these are custom-made Barbecue, offset barbecue pits. I mean, legit barbecue pits like that anyone would put right up next to like the Moberg pits and the big, big names out there. Hasty Bake, which actually predates as a company in the grilling world in the America, in, in North America, Weber. So Hasty Bake grills out of Tulsa. If you haven't spoken with anyone from those guys and I can, I can introduce you to them, you really should because it's a great story. The, what they're doing to introduce barbecue the cultural barbecue to the people that are around it and and because they're so remotely located like they almost have a they have a instead of a geek squad they have a barbecue squad and they like drive out to like the remote locations their customers are in and and really it's just a it's a cool amalgamation of like barbecue culture with their own native culture and and that's a really neat story and then the other one is i mentioned it before but i'll put it out again and actually the the documentary that was filmed on them has just released for anyone to rent or buy, uh, but comfort farms and what John Jackson's doing. I encourage anyone who appreciates what veterans have done for this country and what it means to really sort of be in touch with exactly where our food comes from and how it's raised across the food pyramid or whatever new diagram that the USDA wants us to follow. Play the uh, diagram. I know, I know, but it's but 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 there it it's an it's an impactful emotional story, and it's just one that I think everyone should should be a part of and and, and enjoy and contribute to if if they're able uh, financially. But so those are the two. The dream, the dream guest question. Right now, honestly, I I really need to try to get Mr. Pat Burke on the show. Pat Burke is. 
he, he's from Murfreesboro, Illinois. That's where right there with 17th street barbecue as well. And Pat Burke and, and Mr. Mills both kind of are in the same area there in, in Southern Illinois. But, you know, Pat Burke has forgotten more about barbecue culture, history than I will ever know in my life. And he is just a, a true gentleman open to, to discussing the, let me tell you a quick story about Pat Burke. I was a couple of years back when they last had the Jack Daniels world championship barbecue event. I went up and walked right up to Mr. Tuffy stone. Who's always super friendly guy, but with him, he's like, come over, let's talk to Pat for a second. And he and Pat, Pat Burke and Tuffy stone are buddies and great story. I mean, every year before the, the Jack Pat Burke gives Tuffy a little charm or a little trinket that says, this is going to bring you your good luck this year. But we had a conversation. It was great. And, and then I kind of moved on and walked around a bit, but funny enough, I met up with a, a young guy who, with along with his wife, are starting a barbecue team, and they went to the first time to Memphis in May, which was prior to that October event in, in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and they had never met anyone in barbecue. They knew all the names, but they walked by, and it just so happened, I think Pat Burke was sitting with some of the other greats in a little tent area. He just sort of noticed they were walking by and said, hey, how y'all doing, and whatever, and and they got to talking and Pat Burke said, well, let me walk you around. Can I, can I show you around and introduce you to some people? And of course, these guys were just like shell-shocked. Are you kidding? I mean, of course. And they walked around and they got to meet a lot of people and they got to Myron Mixon's tent area, setup area. And at one point, there was a reporter there talking with Myron. So they kind of weighed back for a bit. And finally, Myron's like, well, Pat, what are you doing? How's it going? And the reporter was there and the reporter is like, hey, I need to get a picture with, with you, Mr. Burke, and, and with you, you know, Myron. Can I do that? And, and Pat Burke said, you can, but not unless my friends can be in the picture too. And he called that young couple over and brought them in to the, to the picture. And they had their picture taken together. And to this day, Pat connects with that couple on a regular basis checking in with them, making sure they don't have any questions about what they can do better. And come on, man. I mean, that's, that's just, that, that'll choke you up right there. That's just amazing. That's just really cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, have you, have you asked him to be on the show? I, I sort of have, it's one of those weird things, man. Like I've had a conversation with him face to face, but I'm like, Oh, he's, he's busy. He got stuff going. You know how it gets fan, right? Like everyone has the complex. Like, I don't know. Like, how, how do I, how do I ask him? Like, I got to get the schedule. Like, what's he doing? Like, so I just need to just get it done. And I know if I ask him and he's got the time, he'll do it because that's the kind of person he is. I just mental block it going on. I don't know. Nervous fanboy, whatever you call it. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Kevin, I want to get back to your website because yes, I want people to know that not only has uh, your, your podcast archive on there, there's barbecue reviews, there's buying guides, and, and there's recipes. Mm-hmm. So the recipes, we all know, we, we talk a lot about ribs, smoking ribs and chicken and pork and, and brisket. But what's something unique that maybe you or you, or you have a recipe on that people could, could make on their barbecue? Well, I, I don't know if I have it up there. But I recently had my first foray with beef cheeks, right? Uh-huh. So 
it was it was sort of the, the the hot thing in the in the spotlight of of cooking and grilling and barbecue for a little while there, and I just kind of missed the boat on that, of course, because that's what I do best. And so we had like you know, hey, wait, hold on, guys. So situation where I I wanted to basically do like a true barbacoa style with the, at least the protein. I didn't do big dig the pit in the ground and do the whole thing, but I uh, actually on the hasty bake I went ahead and and I smoked them for two general maybe one I don't know one fifty or so, and then I braised them in some Shinerbach beer, some onions, some garlic, some beef stock, and to the gut just like really just wiggly, jiggly tender. And they just busted all apart in all the best possible ways, shredded right up for some tacos. I got inspired by um, Sam, the cooking guy, who is a, a guest occasionally on uh, Greg's show, barbecue, the Barbecue Central show. And also um, Jake and Beth down here with Juke and Bees Barbecue here in Lakeland, Florida, and, and did my, my, first, my first try at... Um, pickled onions with the red onion sliced up, just some apple cider vinegar, you know, a little bit of water, some pepper, a little salt, some sugar, and put them on the tacos and with a little cilantro and all the other good stuff. And and so that's a recipe that I need to get up there on the site. As far as basic recipes, I really think people can elevate their game on by looking at the rib recipe that I had, the competition rib recipe or recipes that I have on the website at barbecuebeat.com. I think we'll do a lot to really give people who are kind of maybe used to that direct grilling rib experience where it works fine. It just gives you a different product at the end. By going through the steps that I outline on the website, you can really get a sense of what these competition guys are doing. I've judged a lot of barbecue for what it's worth. I'm a master judge on both the KCBS side and the Florida Barbecue Association side. All that really means is that I've put a lot of focus into eating a whole lot of barbecue. Um, <laughs> but but I've, I've cooked with teams as basically a glorified dishwasher and, and mover out of the wear. But having an understanding and appreciation for what they go through and, and, and creating a product at home that really is, it's a treat. I mean, I wouldn't recommend eating competition style ribs weekly. You might have to go to the doctor right? Because there's a lot of sugar involved and it's not health food. Okay. But, but it's delicious. And it's, it's something that you can really sort of have a, a wow factor. And so the, the rib recipes on the website, I think are a winner for sure. You know, uh, Kevin, I don't know what kind of fish you're trying to cook, but I love to cook cedar plank salmon. Oh, oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah so, that's yeah. that's my cheat. That's the one I do because because you just serve it around the plank or just kind of scoot it off in the skin separate. I think it's mental, but I'm pretty sure that cherry wood planks are the are better than cedar in my opinion. I don't know why, but but I've come to believe that it gives it, it's probably mental, but like a velvety like a, almost a velvety texture, but I don't know. But the cedar's the classic and it's if you ever noticed Cedar's really the only wood plank that doesn't bow up on you quite as bad as like the other woods. I don't know if you guys have noticed that you get like almost a a horseshoe shape with like cherry wood or alder. Yeah, Yeah, but also, well, it depends. You can get that with cedar also if it's a thinner wood. It depends. Like I'll I'll order from Amazon Mm -hmm. and I'll get the nice thick plank. The only problem is I find with, and, and I don't have... I don't have as, uh, my taste is not as good. Smell and taste aren't great. So 
I don't really get the taste of, of cedar in the salmon. Mm. And it, yeah. it cooks so quickly yeah. that I don't know if it really gets much of the cedar. Have, have you tried giving this, the plank, the thicker planks, a head start before you yes. put the fish on? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, you know, you soak it and then you, you kind of let it start to smoke. But still doesn't quite get there on the thicker no, side. But, it, but at least it doesn't stick to the grain if you, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, there are also those cool. Have you ever tried the, um, they have like the cedar wraps? Basically, super yes. thin. Yes, the, and they have a little string. And mm-hmm. you yes. Yeah, yeah, that works. Also, I've done the uh, lay the slices of citrus, like orange and lime and, and lemon, on the grill surface, and then put the fish on top of that. And that kind of that's another trick. That is yeah. Jeff. Did you hear that? <laughs> I did. Uh, I did. I got to try that. So wait, you put you slice up oranges or. Yeah. Like orange, lemon, you know, it's all going to basically get nuked by the fire, but it's a nice flavorful sort of barrier there. And uh, I think, I think some of the oils and, and, and so on and so forth kind of impart into the, in, into the proteins. That's the degree to which flavors go into proteins, I think is a whole nother interesting concept, right? Like even with marinating, you're getting maybe just a, a little bit down into the meat, you know, unless you're injecting and really kind of getting after it. But I think the the aromatics do kind of help out. My buddy Craig Tabor is is classic. He's great um, for basting poultry on the grill with like the little, it takes like a, I'm going to call it like maybe just like a, a wooden kitchen spoon and you flip it around to the the end of the spoon, the, the fat part is in your hand. And then like the, the other part goes down and you tie with some like kitchen twine, you know, some aromatics, some basil, some rosemary, whatever you want to pee on there. And then as you baste it with the butter, it heats up and kind of gives a little, little touch. He's fancy. Craig Tabor. He, <laughs> this guy cures uh, quail egg yolks in, in a sugar salt combination. And like when they get kind of dried out and firm, like a little rubber eraser, he grates them finely over his dishes for a little umami bomb. There you go. So, so Kevin, I, I see we're running short on time here. I see you also have a uh, barbecue beat podcast community. Yeah, that's a, a growing spot on Facebook. I'm an old guy, so Facebook's my jam. You know, it's like it's like you know MySpace back in the day. But uh, right. But but it's great, and I encourage anyone who loves barbecue just go to the Barbecue Beat website, click on the Barbecue Beat Community link, and join us over there. Everyone's welcome. The only thing we ask is that you keep it about what you're cooking yourself, if possible, and and ask questions and share what you're doing, and just let's have some uh, culinary fun together. Yeah, I, I see a couple of people on, on the site that uh, we've had on as guests. So we have a, a connection there. Jeff Rice, I see, is a member, and yeah. Brian Cooper and Lindell Scranton. We're all familiar with them. Oh, great guys. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. So when you see a new barbecue podcast, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, does it make you want to, you know, upchuck, basically? <laughs> <laughs> oh no the, the first thing i do is i try to triangulate their location where they're broadcasting from and then i send out my minions right <laughs> i make sure that i do everything i can't know <laughs> i i love it actually the more the merrier like you said there's an endless amount of topics and a, a lot of different sort of tacks you can take like, like you guys have a, a great rapport together you know the guys over at the Pitmasters podcast you know they, they have an the same kind of great sort of rapport back and forth with each other and got smoking hot confessions with ben out in uh you know he's a guy you should definitely talk to if you haven't to it out of uh, the gold coast of australia 
it, it's really an open open field and, and even if it was super and it, as, as niche as it is there's a lot to talk about right and so and and i'm the first to say congratulations when good things happen to other people out there because again there's enough negativity in the world let's keep it positive let's keep everybody Agreed. push everybody to do good things and we'll all be happier for it right and also, I think that uh, it's it says something that this 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 is an expanding area. The barbecue is becoming bigger, and I think it only new podcasts only add to the fact that there's more people listening and there's more people enjoying it. So bring it on. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> bring it on. Is okay. So you've been doing your podcast for three years. Future plans. I think right now it's just kind of keep going in the direction I'm going. Um, I recently have started adding a, a recorded video component to the podcast, something you guys, it's always nice if YouTube doesn't really do it for you. If all you see is your logo and then you hear the audio, I mean, that's not why YouTube exists. So I finally got smart and started to actually post the recorded conversations. So shout out to Joe Rogan and all those guys who really did the sort of trailblazing with that kind of stuff. But yeah, and keep that going and keep it active and interesting. And then, uh, yeah, just, just keep trying to add value, right? And, and, and not just go for the, uh, the known entities, the big names out there, but, but have conversations with people who are doing good things that I can, for what little I'm able, help elevate, lift up, and get some exposure to what they're doing as well. So. Well, your last episode was fascinating. You had on, and I, I should have written it down, but uh, he was talking about, it. he wrote the book. Oh, Robert Moss. Robert Moss. Yeah, Robert, Robert Moss. F. Moss. He's wow. the, uh, yeah, the barbecue editor for Southern Living Magazine, a great historian, a super nice guy, and, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. That was really Very fun. Very much. Very oh, much. Okay. Kevin, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? How people can get in touch with you? Any, uh, any social media you want people to know about? Yeah, we've mentioned the Barbecue Beat website, barbecuebeat.com. Um, also, Instagram, you can find me there at Barbecue Beat. Someone long ago got Barbecue Beat on Facebook. So, my page there is, and the group is the, the Barbecue Beat there. Yeah, just that's really it. And, and if you're interested through the website, definitely consider signing up for the newsletter. I don't fill your inbox with stuff. It's usually one email every month or two, just about an update about what we're doing on the show. And I always welcome suggestions as to, you know, from people as to who I can talk to. So go to the contact area on the website. And if you've got people that you see out in the wild who are doing cool stuff, uh, if you yourself have some things going on, reach out to me and talk to me and, and see what we can get going on. Okay. I just clicked the link to uh, subscribe. So you have one more subscriber. Awesome. <laughs> yes, that was my goal. Good, good job. Fantastic. Kevin, I got to tell you, as I said before, fantastic. The, the blog, the, the podcast, enjoy listening to it very much. And we encourage all of our listeners to check it out, to listen. As I said in the intro, we never say there's a podcast that I listen to. And it's not, it's not a barbecue podcast. And he, he says it, I think, tongue-in-cheek, but whatever. And he says, the only podcast you'll ever need. Oh, no, the only podcast that matters, he says. Well, that's just not right. So I think your podcast is terrific. And I encourage all of our listeners to go there, support Kevin. Uh, he's doing great stuff. His guests are fantastic. And you guys are really going to enjoy it. Just don't leave us. 
Please add him to your list. Don't right. Don't take them. No, absolutely. And, 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 and don't and, take them. <laughs> I would never. And and you're you're both very kind. Thank you so much. And uh Fleet, in the not too distant future we can work something out to where I can have you guys on on my show as well. So it's oh, only fair. Return much. the favor, spread the love. Okay. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very much, Kevin. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. Jeff, you got you know, the barbecue beat podcast, great podcast, Kevin. Great guy. Thank you for coming on. I will gladly share whatever praise, whatever podcast there is for barbecue with him. Really great guy. And now, Jeff, we're going to be finishing up the show with the musician and the poet, Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski. We will see everybody on episode 80. And here they are with Ace of Bobo. See you later. Oh uh-huh.